Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Sukkah, Daf Lamed Vav, page thirty-six. So our daf really opens with uh, it, it's got a side conversation which the which Lulav and Etrog and specific Etrog comes to answer, which brings us into a whole conversation about many different ways that an Etrog can be pasul, um, that it will be really fundamentally ruined for its use as one of the Arba Minim. And the one that captured my attention, <coughs> excuse me, is Etrog HaBoser. If you've got an Etrog that is unripe. Now, part of the reason I think that this is interesting, and we're going to discuss it really in tomorrow's stuff more, is the question of what is going to make an Etrog be okay, acceptable for the use of for the Arba Minim, I, I feel is connected to why do we have these Arba minim that we have as a mitzvah to begin with. So we know that there's certain criterion, and one of them is Hadar, and Hadar most likely, for most people anyway, means beautiful. So then we understand why anything that's really like blemished or disfigured or dry, that kind of thing, um, where it's considered not beautiful, beautiful is good enough reason right, to knock it out of the what's eligible. But in this case, when we're talking about something that is unripe, an etrochaboser, it's less clear to me Right, something that is not ripe is not necessarily. And there's a discussion here about whether it's hadar or not hadar, whether it is beautiful or not beautiful. And frankly, you know, I guess I don't know enough about etrogim in this capacity, but there certainly are fruits that, like, you know, the day before they're not ripe, but the day after they are ripe. So to say that it's, you know, how unripe does an unripe etrog have to be to not be kosher is an interesting question. And in fact, we have here a machloket between Rabbi Akiva. Posel, he says, Rabbi Kiva says it's not kosher for the mitzvah. And the, the rabbis, meaning the majority opinion here, is that an unripe etrog is sufficient to fulfill your mitzvah of lulav and etrog. I'm a rabbi. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon, So then the Gemara continues and says that Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Shimon, they basically said the same thing. <clears throat> Rabbi Kiva had Amran. Rabbi Kiva's position we've just read already. Rabbi Shimon Maihi, what did he say? What did Rabbi Shimon say? The Tanya Rabbi Shimon Poter et Adrukim Bekotnan. That Rabbi Shimon um, would exempt Etrogim from the tithing, from Shimon and Maestro, right? Which is basically saying, you know, it's not, it's not yet eligible in terms of its um, identity as a fruit, you know, when they're too small. Excuse me, meaning from the word katan, meaning small, when they're still growing to be their full size. And the idea then is that, the implication rather, is that Rabbi Shimon's opinion about something that is unripe, meaning it has not yet even grown to its full size, it doesn't even count as a fruit, you know, according to this view, where you're not going to be giving true metamice on it because, because it's not real yet. It hasn't achieved that status. So that's why I say I'm intrigued, and, and we're going to discuss it tomorrow, I guess, um, in terms of the discussion of what what are we doing with this mitzvah of Lulav and Etrog to begin with? When we talk about sukkah, we understand that, I mean, there's all kinds of very elaborate and important drashot, explications, interpretations of what we benefit from, what do we gain from the mitzvah of sukkah. Certainly, there's just the straight up actual verses, biblical text tells you, this is this is a mitzvah of sukkah, so too. These are the mitzvah of the Arba Minim. That's really enough. We don't really need rationale. But on the other hand, once we have rationale, it helps understand, I think, it provides a, a useful backdrop to understanding why might something be knocked out 
as being um, something puzzle or not. And I think that the function here, right, when, when you say, why would an unripe etrog be unfit? Why would an unripe etrog be unfit? It seems to be the part of the question is whether it is in fact beautiful or not. I have one little more, one small line on Rabbi Kiva's opinion here, as interpreted by Abaye. I'm really Abaye, Dilma Lohi, Ad Khan Loka my Rabbi Kiva Hacha, Debainan Hadar Veleka, Abal Hatam Kurabanan Sfirale. So Abai says, because so, Rabbah, let's make this clear. Okay, Rabbah is the one who said that Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Shimon say the same thing. So then Abai says to Rabbah, right, meaning maybe that's not the case. Maybe Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Shimon really don't have the same opinion. And Rabbi Kiva's only concern was not about whether it's a fruit or not a fruit, but that something unripe, something that is not yet ripe, um, may not be hadar, may not yet be beautiful. Uh, which is a different kind of issue than saying it's too small or it's not even it's not it's not even speaking to the question of you know the size and the color and all these kinds of things and so perhaps he really would say even a very small etrog you should be taking tithes and Rabbi Shimon's position uh, meaning so the, the the fact that they can both end up aligned on the point of the unripe etrog not being kosher for the midst of lul of an etrog does not mean that they agree on all other points. Um, which is, you know, it stands to reason. There's plenty of times where opinions line up, but their underlying rationale for why is fundamentally different. And that's why I say, like, we need to delve a little bit further into understanding the mitzvah of Lulavanetric to begin with, and perhaps then we'll be able to shape more this understanding or or backdrop of why or when an etrog is going to be pasul. When is anything, when is any of these going to be knocked out of the running? Not because they're dry or stolen, but in terms of their... I want to say ability to fulfill the expectation of what it means to do this mitzvah. And I think one of the things you brought up is this whole concept of kidor, right? This whole idea that the etrog itself needs to somehow be beautiful. And I, this was one of the things that I wanted to read. So I'm going to read it and then make my point in response to what you read. This is right before the Mishnah, right? Where we talk about right? We're talking about this very large etrog that you would need, uh, you know, uh, that was th- that was so large, you know, that you would need uh, uh, two hands to sort of hold it, right? I'm a Tanya, so they quote a price to her. I'm a Rav Yossi, Masa Baravi Akiva Shabalo Beit Hakneset, Betrogo Agtefo. So Rav Yakiva once came to the Beit Knesset, and his etrog was on his shoulder. So this is presumably a super large etrog that you could not even hold in your hand. Amar lo Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says, "Misham Raya." So Rabbi Yehuda says to him, "Is there is there a proof from here? Right. In other words, maybe that you can have a very very large etrog." But what did the rabbi say back? Ein zahadar. They said this is not beauty, and I think this sort of illustrates that there's a subjectivity to the concept of hadar. Right. The concept of kidur, particularly when it comes to, uh, you know, the arba minim. But I think there's something very specific that's different than the other Arba Minim with the etrog itself. Um, you know, because it's a fruit, you know, a fruit can have different shapes, different sizes. Yes, your lulav can be longer, shorter, but I think there, this is a little bit more particular to the etrog. And I think here we see the story where Rabbi Akiva may have had one understanding of what the hidor for etrog is, and everybody else is like, nah, that's kind of just like a freakishly big etrog. 
I don't think that's a particularly beautiful etrogue. And so the concept that our Arba Minim need to be beautiful, you know, how do we codify that into actual halakha, which tends to be an objective system when beauty is usually subjective? I think that's a really interesting point. I, I think that also, and I, I we're talking now about this as a given, right? The beauty is a part of the nature of these species. Um, let's point out, of course, that there is <laughs> there is a very strong dat yachid, at least, saying, no, none of it has anything to do with beauty. And it's all about, you know, dwelling in the in the mitzvah type of thing. Um, I only mention that as an aside because I, I think that much of our focus is on this idea that these these species are to be beautiful. And I think that it perhaps argues that there is such a thing as an objective criterion for beauty, which is not so surprising to me. Even, even you know, they do all these studies about human, human beings' decision of what is beautiful, right? And how um, symmetry and even featured and how they, you know, they put all the faces together and the most, the literally the average one, meaning literally the average of all the faces smushed together in a computer simulation turns out to be the one that everybody agrees is the most officially beautiful. That doesn't mean that you don't like someone else's looks more, but um, I think that there may be a capacity to say, this is more pleasing to the eye. This is more beautiful officially even if you might like the one that's officially less beautiful. Right, exactly. And I think that's the subjective piece, which is really interesting here. Um, I'm going to move on to the Mishnah that we have here, uh, which brings up another concept to all of this. So when we talk about binding the Lulav, right, when we take the four species of the Lulav together, the Arbaminim, we need to bind it with its own uh Species, Rabbi Yehuda, that's according to Rabbi Yehuda's. Rabbi Meir, Meir, Afilo, Vemeshicha, right? Rabbi Meir says, no, you could take some type of cord or string or something like that. I'm a Rabbi Meir, so now Rabbi Meir again is going to give a story. Masa, which is with the story before with Rabbi Akiva, Masa Ba'anche Yerushalayim, Shayu Ogdin, Lulavayim, Begimoniyot, Shel Zahab. And so Rabbi Meir says that there basically was an incident, a story where they would, um, bind the men of Jerusalem would bind their lulavim with these uh, gold rings, right? And so his point was saying, look, right, you don't need to do a bimino. They used to use gold. Amrulo, the Chachamim said to him, bimino hayu ogdin otam milamata. They said, no, if you sort of looked later down on the lulav, lower down, underneath the rings, they would use uh, actually the mean, they would use one of the arbo minim, and the gold is really just simply for um, decorative, uh, you know, for decorative um, uh, uh, purposes. And so then the Gemara goes on to explain Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, right? I'm a rabbi, I feel deceived, I feel bi'ikara, didikla, right? So Rabbi says, even with the fibers, like in other words, it doesn't have to be the lulav part, but it could be a different part of the palm tree. So it could be the fibers that grow around the trunk or a piece of the trunk of the date palm. But right, but I'm a rabbi. And rabbi also says, My time is a rabbi Yehuda. What's the reason for rabbi Yehuda? And this reason really makes a lot of sense because, right, that he holds that you have to have rabbi Yehuda holds you have to have some type of binding with the lulav. And if you bring in another species, then it's really like you had five species, right? So that's like a baltotzi, like you add it on, 
you're not doing the mitzvah appropriately. And that's why you need to use it uh, with the actual one itself. But then the Gemara gets into an interesting piece, which is that maybe according to Rabbi Yehuda also, you need to not only have that your lulav uh, is, is used with the minim, but actually the sukkah itself. Um, and so I'm not going to read all of this inside, but this is really the next uh, section where by using the, the pasukah, pasukot teshvu, right, that pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 23, verse 42, that you have to reside in the sukkah, it seems to me that it could be a sukkah of any material. That's what Rabbi Meir says, right? Sukkah shokol davar, tivri Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, this is the part I read, ain't sukkah no haget ela barba minim shebalulav. You could only make a sukkah if it's from the four meaning of the lulav, the hadin no tain, right? And so he says, it's basically, this is based on logic. Umay lulav she'en no hei balelot kiviyamim. Lulav, which we only, we don't do at night, only during the day. We only can use these four minim, these four species to be yotze, the mitzvah of lulav. Sukkah, which we do at night and day. And this really does not, so does he says, so basically, sukkah, which is 24 7, then, then obviously that we have to do with the arba minim because lulav is only during the day. This really doesn't seem particularly logical. And basically, the rabbis say that to him. They say, no, this doesn't make sense. This isn't a good kalvachomer because. It you end up actually being very mekel. It seems like you're being more machmir because you can only build your sukkah out of certain things, but actually you been, end up being more mekel. And why is that? And now I know I'm reading from the top of the next stop, right? Lo Because let's say you can't find any of the arba minim. Let's say you live in a city or a town. None of those species exist. And I think this also speaks to, and something that you and I have been brought, have we feel have been hinted to in the DAF that it's clear that there were sometimes where the Arba Minim were available, sometimes where they were not. And so what they're basically saying is, so if you didn't have the Arba Minim, right, a person basically, you wouldn't have to do the Mitzvah Sukkah. And so that's where you would end up being sort of more Mekel, right? And then they go back to the Torah and they're like, look, this, the Torah just says you have to sit in a Sukkah for seven days. And it really means a sukkah, you know, uh, of anything. And then finally, they bring another proof text for this. The Chayn Ezra Omer, right? We know that with Ezra, right, in the book of Ezra, which also can refer to the book of Nehemiah, because it probably was originally one book. It got split later. So the Pasuk that they're actually quoting is from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15. And so we know one of the, the holidays that was not done for a while was the holiday of Sukkot. And during the Shivat Zion, the return, after the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash at the end of those 70 years, they came up and they were commanded to do the mitzvah of sukkah. And what does it say? And so they're commanded to go get olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches. So the last two are part of the Arbami name. But the point is, is that there's the, the, the olive branches and the pine, pine branches right, were brought to make Sukkot. So it seems clear that a Sukkot can be made from things other than the four species. Now, the Gemara will go on to discuss this a little more, what Rabbi Yehuda does exactly 
with this particular pasuk. But I, you know, two comments here. I just think it's an interesting con, you know, concept that Rabbi Yehuda has that he sort of wants to be consistent throughout. That sort of like the Arba Minim have some type of elevated status, even going to the Sukkah itself. And then I always like these meta discussions where, yes, he uses a Kalva Homer and the rabbis basically come to him and they're like, nah, this is not a real Kalva Homer. And even when you read <laughs> Rabbi Yehuda, it doesn't read like a true Kalva Homer. And then the rabbis sort of bring a variety of different reasons to sort of say like, this is why this isn't going to actually work. And you can make a sukkah out of many different materials. So I just want to go back to your point about not the sukkah being, the, or rather it's together with this point that the sukkah can be made out of many different materials. And yet when we bind the lulav and etrog together, that is not acceptable, right? It only can be biminoshal the lulav. And that is what we have, right? These little, I don't know what, like little, I don't know what we call them. A little piece of lulav, basically. Right. It's a strip of lulav. And, and, I mean, I guess you can, or, or the the hand, the handle, the thing that you put each piece in, which I think you can call it an egghead, right? You can call it something that is binding it, but it's not as if these are terms that exist or or identities of of objects that exist outside of the context of lulav. But and then you know, from the other side of it, I feel like there's a a tremendous, um, I don't know the same way that people like to beautify everything in Judaism, you know, which I think is a wonderful impulse. There's also this idea that we're going to have many beautiful options of casings, you know, um, boxes or bags or whatever to hold the, the etrog. And there's this like, you know, the, the idea that you, you can't, at the end of the day, we don't want silver, gold, jewels, whatever on the little of an etrog binding them together. We don't want, we will talk about this, you know, uh, some other point as well, we don't want silver and gold encrusting our chauffeur, right? There's there's a certain, I don't know, earthiness, like get back to the, the these product, not products, objects, items, pr- they're produce, right? Meaning they're grown. They're supposed to be, you do like karka, they all come from the ground and we're supposed to kind of identify them as in that way of, of nature. Now, I'm not granola enough i'm not a nutty crunchy enough in my identity and my way of thinking of things to to think that that's an obvious thing that obviously it's more beautiful if it comes from the earth i might think that it's more beautiful if it if it's adorned with precious metals and stones and so on and the answer is you know it's a rebuke like no it needs to be but me no it needs to be the the most natural streamlined um, put this identity together as the four species that come from the ground and are the specific mitzvah, and that's it. Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I, I don't. I think there is something nice about it that we bind it with the own species, and it does make a lot of sense. Um, but even Rabbi, you know, but even that there was this notion of decorating it with, you know, gold. Uh, we see that in other things. You know, there's this beautiful description of the the baskets that the bikurim were brought in. Um, you know, we're not going to, that's not part of the Talmud Bavli. It, it, it's, you know, the last Masachet of, of Zraim. Um, and they decorated those baskets, not just with fruits, but it was decorated with, with, with the Shivat Minim, but it was decorated with gold and they made it look very beautiful. So I think there's sort of this, you know, vacillation between sort of using things that we consider to be riches or beautiful, but also turning to the natural world and its own beauty. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rebani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.